Hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students interview the experts who have contributed to the festival. Uh, The general idea is to pair up students and researchers who are from very different disciplines so as to uh, bring things back to basics. It's a sort of interdisciplinary dream, you know, hands reaching across the waters, uh, contact being made across the pew, uh, that sort of thing. There are no stupid questions here. Uh, And this year's theme is power in all of its forms, from nuclear energy to medieval saints, from the history of money to the biology of extraordinary animals. Uh, Hello, I'm Greg, Gregory Miller being my full name, uh, an early modern English MPhil student, and what you're about to listen to is an interview which I conducted uh, but a few days ago with Dr Lauren Gardner and Dr Edwin Rose, who are both organising and hosting the panel dedicated to exploring the Cambridge University Herbarium in its historical context. The Cambridge University Herbarium is one of the most diverse and historic natural sciences collections held by the University of Cambridge. And in fact, it was awarded uh, designated status only last year by the Arts Council of England, which officially recognized the collection as one of outstanding national importance. The event will be split up into two panels, one which took place on the 23rd, another which will take place on Thursday the 30th from half five to 7 p.m at the Sainsbury Auditorium in the Cambridge Herbarium. The event will involve panels of experts coming together from the arts and sciences for a series of talks, presentations and discussions uh, with audience participation that aim to bring the diverse uh, histories embodied in this specimen collection back to life. Um, There'll be a rich material culture with which the audience will be invited to engage dating from the mid-18th century all the way to the present, with specimens collected by enslaved peoples in the West Indies, women who travelled across war-torn Napoleonic Europe, the water plants of Cambridgeshire, specimens collected by intrepid travellers in the Himalaya, Charles Darwin's specimens from the HMS Beagle, and those collected from Singapore and Malaya in the middle of the Second War. So it's an incredibly diverse uh, array of um, specimens which will be um, talked about, engaged with, and so on. Now to give a brief introduction of the two people to whom I, I uh, held this conversation. Firstly, Dr. Lauren Gardner has over 20 years of experience working in herbaria and botany. Uh, she studied natural sciences at Christ's, which was followed by a master's in science in plant diversity, taxonomy and evolution, and a PhD in the DNA relationships and conservation of a particular group of Southeast Asian orchids, uh, both in association with the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. This was followed by over a decade on the staff at Kew Gardens, which entailed a wide range of experience in plant systematic research, science policy, and tropical field work around the world. This led to a particular interest on Lauren's part in the interactions between plant conservation, ethnobotany, and sustainable livelihoods. And this is all experience which is brought to Cambridge in becoming the curator uh, of the University Herbarium about five and a half years ago. And now we turn to Dr Edwin Rose, who is the principal investigator on the AHRC-funded research project Natural History in the Age of Revolutions, 1776 to 1848, in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science, and the Advanced Research Fellow of Darwin College, Cambridge. 
Edwin's research involves the history of science, empire, and the production of knowledge in the 18th and 19th centuries. And he also has a forthcoming monograph uh, with the University of Pittsburgh Press. Very exciting stuff there for Edwin. Now I'm going to present to you the conversation which I enjoyed thoroughly with both of these uh, uh, incredible uh, people. And I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed listening to them. So I suppose I'll start asking, and I apologise for looking like a bit of an idiot here, um, but what exactly is a herbarium? Well, it's a totally reasonable question. I I never expect that people will automatically know what a herbarium is because people aren't generally familiar with them. Um, but a herbarium is usually a collection of dried, pressed plants. So they're preserved, they're stored archival materials, and they act as a, a repository, a, a basically a library of, or an archive of plant biodiversity. In some ways they're a bit like a, a botanical um, museum, a bit similar to um, the Museum of Zoology, has a lot of dead animals in it. We have a lot of dead plants, um, but our collection spans over 300 years and it has material from all over the world. And it's collected by some extraordinary individuals with some amazing stories behind. What kind of stories? Was there a good, a good uh, particular story? Yeah, I mean, so one of the collections that we are most famous for holding is the Darwin material. Okay. So we have the largest collection of plant material collected by Charles Darwin. Uh, most of it was collected on the Voyage of the Beagle, but we have other material that he gathered together from, from different correspondents. But we have uh, other individuals, such as Alfred Russell Wallace. We have the largest collection of plant material collected by him. We have a lot of material collected from, uh, particularly from the 19th century, from some really important, significant expeditions. Um, a lot of material we estimate out of our around 1.1 million specimens that we hold in this collection. We estimate around 50,000 of them are type specimens, which are the specimens that plant names are attached to. So some of the most important specimens a collection can hold. Um, and we, we document plants from, from, from all over throughout that whole time period. Um, we also have an awful lot of individuals who, whose contribution to botanical knowledge is really underrepresented. We have uh, a lot of female botanists through the ages who have collected material and, and often their material hasn't been attributed to them. It's been uh, lumped in and, and uh, documented by other people. Um, but there's a lot of stories around women. Also, uh, people from different countries, different cultures, indigenous local knowledge captured and by individuals in the field. Again, not often recorded and studied and a lot of the work that we're now doing particularly in, with, with the type of work that um, Edwin is doing it's it's uncovering those stories and, and the people and the practices behind. Well, I suppose that would be a good point Edwin because you've been doing sort of you know the history of how these collections have come to be. How did the University Herbarium sort of come to be? How did it constitute itself? So well that's a long and complex story going uh, back five minutes, uh, <laughs> many hundreds of years. I mean there was no um, official institutional collection until about 1763 when they founded um, or established a specific room for keeping what they called a hortus siccus 
in the old botanic garden. Um, Hortosiccus literally means dry garden, mm -hmm. or herbarium collection of dried plant specimens. That's when the institutional collection was founded. However, the collections here actually go back quite a lot further than that, because what happened at that point was there was lots of private collections, probably one of the most notable was that of John Martin, who was the previous professor of botany, it goes back to the early 18th century, and those collections were sort of incorporated into the university um, in 1763. And um, it really grows from then, and it has been added to by people collecting from all over the world. 1771, for example, Thomas Martin met uh, Joseph Banks and Daniel Solander in London, just weeks after they returned from James Cook's first voyage to the South Pacific, which is the first British ex expedition to that part of the world, mostly known for charting the coasts of New Zealand and the whole of the east coast of Australia. Martin received a set of plants from Joseph Banks, many of which were collected in the field by indigenous people that Banks collected. You go through then, um, and the collection basically has grown non-stop since 1763 and obviously we even had a collection before that and there was even collections before that collected independently within the colleges of the university mm. some might still be out there that we don't know about yet yeah. um, but I mean the next major person after the Martins was John Stevens Henslow very well known as Charles Darwin's tutor in the university Henslow was a great pioneer of the new natural systematics and he was the person responsible for much of the collection, I would say, much of the 19th century material, especially, that we know today. Henslow was also responsible for moving the Botanic Garden to its current site and the scheme we know now, before it was in the centre of the city on the new museum site. And Henslow was responsible for moving that in 1846. He was succeeded by a man called Charles Cardell Babington, who was the... Um, fifth professor of botany in the university and Babington was an incredibly enthusiastic taxonomist and um, collector of most things I would say <laughs> and under Babington the collection basically ballooned and expanded massively and he was incredibly successful and I think it's because of his enthusiasm at actually securing quite large grants from the Central University that supported the acquisition of some really really major materials I mean the collection compiled by John Lindley I think is is one of those. Do you want to say yeah. a few words about Lindley, Lauren? Yeah, absolutely. So, so John Lindley's collection, it's uh, 58,000 sheets, wow. so 58,000 specimens, uh, which he didn't collect individually himself. He sponsored a huge number of expeditions. He purchased material from all sorts of collectors. Um, he was the, essentially, he was the secretary of what is now the Royal Horticultural Society. Um, it was the Horticultural Society of London at the time and so he had a very important role in, in botany and natural history at that time. He was, he was involved with um, the creation of Kew Gardens as, as a national institution from being a, a purely royal garden through to becoming a part of the state infrastructure um, and he was incredibly well connected based in London and like I said he sponsored some phenomenal expeditions um, and so his collection which we purchased or 
uh, Charles Calder Babington purchased in 1866. That whole collection came to Cambridge and it is absolutely laden with type specimens from some phenomenal material, um, material from collections, your Western collections go into parts of the world which had not been botanised, mm. certainly not by uh, Western um, principles. And a huge amount of the material they were bringing back from those trips, sending back to England, was of horticultural or ornamental importance. So a vast number of the specimens which are in the Lindley collection are the original material that a lot of the plants in people's gardens were based on. Um, it's full of rhododendrons and irises and all sorts of, of charismatic, interesting plants. And Lindley had a lot of his new species illustrated. So he had his own artists, um, he commissioned other artists as well, um, and a lot of the material in his collection has uh, either either a hand-coloured plate, so a, um, a copper plate illustration that was published with the new species, or in, in quite a number of cases it's the original artwork that the plate was based on and it's, and it's with the specimen. It's, it's a truly extraordinary collection in its own right. But I was going to say something about Henslow and how, you know, as, as Edwin mentioned, he, he moved the garden, got the garden from the centre of town out to the south of Cambridge where there was much more space. He could lay out the garden systematically. So we have very famous systematic beds, um, all the plants laid out in their systematic groups. He laid the trees out, the, the arboretum was planted out systematically. So you walk through the, the plant tree of life essentially, as you go around the garden. And he did this with the herbarium as well. He bought um, his, his scientific thinking, his, his um, structuring of all this material that he, he inherited from the Martin collection, the John and Thomas Martin collections, but also his own specimens. He really made this collection into a, into a, a very active scientific research and teaching collection. And we have a lot of his original artwork as well. He was an extraordinarily accomplished man, John Stevens Henslow. He illustrated lots of material. He wrote letters to correspondents asking for copies of illustrations, extra copies, not just the ones that he had in, in the journals that he was subscribing to and the books that he was purchasing for the library. But he was asking for additional copies so that he could cut them up and he could attach them to the herbarium sheets so that he could make um, this, this amazing set of specimens, well they're not specimens, they're illustrated teaching sheets where he, he takes one sheet and he puts together pictures of the plant in life, dissections of the plant, the fine structures, the, the embryos, the seedlings, everything all on one single plate. And often, often they're coloured, they're painted. Um, and he used these in his teaching and, and, and we know that he, he passed these sheets around. The students looked at these teaching sheets and also his wall charts, uh, which we, we have some of them. The Whipple Museum has a lot of the wall chart material from Henslow's time. Um, so beautiful, big uh, illustrations of plants, but also the dissections, the, the flowers cut in half and the structures revealed, the again, the microscopic details things that would have been really unusual and different and charismatic for students to see. And I mean, they're, they're really the precursors of, of the, the PowerPoint slides. Um, he, he brought a visual element into his teaching.
I was just going to say, it is. it would have been remarkable in an age... You've got to think of an age before we had screen projectors of any kind. And these would have been really essential. And Henslow would have described aspects on these charts to students. And they've all got string at the top so they can be taken down and put back up. So every lecture you would have gone to, he would have, or he and his assistants probably, would have redecked the walls. Yeah. Thematically, I mean, it's an enormous amount of effort, and but it was an a remarkably um, engaged form of teaching because yeah. he didn't just have the images; he had the plants as yeah. well. Yeah. And tours, the botanic garden and the lecturing program went together, and he used to take the students round the garden and look. And at the he took things. them on field trips as well. Yes. So we have material that was collected by Henslow on field trips with his students. You know, there's one particular specimen that I quite often show people where we know that uh, on that particular date, Henslow took his students out into the field and they went to the, it's, it's, uh, it's Gambling Gay Heath, so it's mm. a, a local place. They collected material, we have this material. Charles Carlyle Babington was a contemporary of Darwin. They studied together under Henslow. And he writes in his diary for on that particular date that he collected plants at Gambling Gay Heath with Henslow and, and the other students. And we know that Darwin virtually always was on those trips. Um, Darwin became known as the man who walks with Henslow when he was a student. You know, this is before Darwin, Charles Darwin was famous. He, he was just a regular student, but he was always there. He was always at Henslow's lectures. He was always on the field trips. Um, so, you know, that, that particular specimen, almost certainly Darwin was, was there when that was collected. Um, yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of stories behind the material. I think, I believe Henslow also, you know, he, he used demonstrators at the point. I don't know if demonstrators existed before that sort of era, but in the... In the um, Not systematically in botany. I Henslow was a real pioneer yeah. and made it a thing that you did. So in the descriptions of the lectures, you know, there's descriptions of this, this visual material, but also the plants being looked at and dissected and, and the demonstrators demonstrating. Yeah. What was inside essentially there's that real importance on praxis and actual mm. practice and engaging materially with something as well as i suppose learning about it by looking at by learning about it by looking at a kind of powerpoint like you say or something like that not that we should denigrate powerpoints <laughs> too much because they have the their use but um and it sort of makes me think of you know when you have these sort of early uh, it sort of reminds me of these early stirrings of anatomy in the period and you had these great anatomy rooms yeah. where we would have these grand designs on the walls that were and obviously you were having to go to watch these dissections, and it was all very... Like you said, like I suppose you're you're peeling back these kinds of... Um, it's going to the floor do things like this. Yeah. You're also peeling back a human. I'm, not sure, I'm sure that's exactly where Henslow was getting getting these ideas. I mean, in Cambridge at the time, the medical school didn't actually have that much to do with botany. Yeah. But it Which was very, very focused on anatomy. Mm. And I suspect the two types of teaching, especially when the natural sciences tripod started to emerge in the 19th century, mm. I suspect the two types of teaching started to yeah. come together in the practice, in the way in which they were delivered, yeah. even though the themes behind the actual teaching remain and, quite and actually, different. For, for people who've ever attended a lecture in the Department of Plant Sciences on Down Insight, that, the, the Botany School building, you know, that lecture theatre, it was built in 1904, so a little bit later than the period we're talking now, but it, it was still that, that very traditional design. Um, you could, and you could imagine the wall charts, which they were still using mm -hmm. in that period, being hung up around that very steep 
sort of semicircular design of, of, of lecture room. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's very evocative actually. I'm, I'm guessing, although I don't, I'm imagine even though the theory has changed, is that kind of practice of taxonomizing still present? Is that kind of yeah, so, so botanical teaching in universities has uh, suffered quite a decline, let's say, over the last hundred years. Um, and there are no specific botany undergraduate degrees these days. However, there is botany in lots and lots of different degrees, lots of biological degrees. Um, and there's a, a lot of interest from students. You know, if you run a course talking about systematics and classification and identification, they are oversubscribed and, and the, the university here we, we do have more of that kind of teaching coming back in mm. um, and the botanic garden here does a teaching systematics as well so yeah but the hands-on teaching is really really valuable well, also sure. you mentioned um, how there's been a sort of decline in the teaching of botany or in sort of specialized botany yeah, courses specific botany specific botany courses I mean but you know we're kind of seeing these these specimens, the specimens in this curated display um, in this event. Um, do they still, as well as having a kind of historical resonance, a historical meaning and importance? I'm guessing there's still a kind of yes. scientific, you know, um, urgency to them, right? Absolutely, mean? absolutely. They have enormous scientific value and and um, potential. Um, they every single plant specimen represents a, a point in time. So when you collect a plant specimen, make a herbarium specimen out of it, you record what the plant is. Other people might re-identify it, they might reclassify it, but, but you, you say, I have collected this particular plant. You record when you collected it. You record where you collected it. And then you record all sorts of associated information, ideally. Um, so ideally, you know who collected it, and they'll have a unique number with it. And then you might have notebook information, you might have photographs, you might have DNA samples taken at the same time, you might have uh, wood samples if it was a tree, you might have spirit specimens, so very three-dimensional flowers. Uh, often you, you collect those into alcohol um, to preserve the three-dimensional shape of them. So you can have all these associated extra bits of information. And on the label you might record things like uh, the colour of the flowers um, in case that fades, it often fades in, you know, depending on how you dry the specimens. Um, you might record associated plants and animals, you might record the habitats, the geology, all sorts of information. That plant specimen, that point in time, is sort of captured forever in that specimen. Now we have 1.1 million of those specimens, so we have all these points of time collected together. That data that information tells us what grew where and when. It also tells us what flowered when as well, because normally when you collect material, you collect flowers or fl flowering uh, reproductive material, so you can identify it. So uh, I did a lot of work when I was based at Kew Gardens, at Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. I was on the staff for over, over a decade, and I did my PhD and my master's with them before that. And a lot of the work I was doing was database in these kinds of specimens and then using that material um, in conservation assessments looking at how vegetation has changed where things were in the past where things are now and then increasingly we're using that data to predict where things might be in the future and whether or not we've got species which are being constrained and constrained to smaller and smaller vegetation 
and climatic envelopes um, and then predicting in the future where will be habitable space for them um, whether or not they're likely to survive whether or not we need to protect different areas you know, conservation planning uses these assessments extensively we use that data to predict where things might be already so if you have a critically endangered plant so you're, you're trying to find are there any more populations of this species then you use herbarium data to figure out where it grew where it grows now you look at the geology you look at the climate and uh, the temperature, the watershed, all, all different other aspects. And you can use that data to see where else exists now. And you can plan your field trips to those places and you can find more material if it exists. And that might change your, your assessment of what you need to do in the future. I think it's, it's extraordinary for understanding <laughs> how natural environments have actively changed. And because of the, the volume of material and the age of it, we can actually chart it. Yeah not just across two different points in time between the present and now, but we actually can usually trace it yeah. for quite consistently for a long yeah. for a long time, two, three hundred years sometimes. Yeah, it's an enormous data set going back, yeah, yeah. like you say, 200, 300 years in, in some instances, telling us what was, what was where. Yeah. Um, it's really precious, um, and there's so much you can do with it. Um, increasingly, you can get DNA out of specimens, older specimens, more recent specimens much more easy to get good quality DNA out that you could use in in um, DNA analyses um, and my, my PhD I did uh, phylogenetics on orchids where even even that time it's a bit over 15 years ago um, getting DNA out of herbarium specimens was incredibly difficult mm. most of my material I had to collect fresh material I had to do field work I had to work with collaborators to get live material that I could extract DNA from and build up a family tree of how they were all related to each other and reclassify things and split things into different species or lump them into larger groups. Um, that work now would be a lot easier as the we could use more herbarium material as well because the the DNA um, technology has changed, the molecular techniques we use have, have moved on so much in that time. So we have people who are getting what called ancient or antique DNA out of specimens. We're doing this in zoology as well uh, with, with animal specimens. But with plant specimens, um, we've been getting DNA out of material that's 200 or more years old. And that can tell us, you know, if we start comparing, look at variation, variability over time, we can see how things have changed, whether things have become genetically what we call bottlenecked, so there's there's less genetic diversity in a population than there was in the past. We can we can do a lot more with all that kind of material. And I mean, how important are non-scientific data and records to this kind of process? You know, local people, local communities. I imagine it's like a really crucial thing to engage with, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh, one of the things I really love about my role, um, you know, I'm the curator of the herbarium. I work with my colleague Amber to look after the specimens to keep them in good condition, to facilitate access to the specimens. Increasingly, we are digitising our specimens. So we are taking high resolution photos of the specimens and um, databasing them. And ultimately, we're going to make them available freely online for researchers and anybody to access and, and use that data and that will feed into other big big database projects that are going on big analyses of the world but working with other people is actually one of the the 
most uh, exciting parts of my role because there are so many different disciplines that use these specimens. You know, we, we are based in the Department of Plant Sciences and historically the herbarium has been in Department of Plant Sciences and what was the botany school previously. But it's not just a scientific collection. They're coming from all sorts of different disciplines and there is so much they can do so. I should yeah, pass I over say, to Edward. I was going to say, I think we'll be really good. Cool. we've been talking about classification and we've been talking about, um, now I'm also prone to over talking. Oh, you wouldn't know it, but I'm prone to over talking. <laughs> um, um, so we've been talking about the importance of classification. We've been talking about yeah. the kind of um, how this collection is drawn from all sorts of pots over all, all over the world, often from perhaps indigenous cultures who haven't been given the proper due for the um, um, things which they themselves have gathered and were of great importance to mm. them. And I know you, Edward, you've been doing a lot about this kind of relationship between the old colonial project and the development of these kinds of herborii. Um, so if you could talk about that, that would be fantastic. I mean, yes. I mean, the, the um, aspects of this collection were gathered from all over the world. I mean, we know the most famous story in here is obviously is obviously people like Darwin, for example. But there's there's hundreds, hundreds of other other examples, probably thousands, I would have, I would have thought. Um, and the, the nice thing about the collection is that when we're starting to look at this material consistently and then starting to identify it by provenance, for example, provenance is a really crucial word here, you can then start to trace it. And one of my main interests is starting to trace the actual objects back through the archives. And because there's often a substantial amount of stuff physical items, people write about them to each other, people publish on them. And it's often in these private letters that you do find mm -hmm. real treasures. So one of the earliest collections that I mentioned earlier, um, compiled by John Martin, prof second professor of botany here, contains a, quite a lot, a substantial volume of specimens labelled Mr Houston. Mm -hmm. These are often coming from the Caribbean, uh, Jamaica, the Antilles, also Central America, New Spain as it was then, now know, as, known as Mexico. And um, there's quite a substantial volume of specimens from um, Campeche and Veracruz. I mean, something I found through tracing Houston's letters that he actually wrote to Hans Sloan, who was um, a London, very prominent wealthy London physician who also made a lot of money out of uh, sugar plantations was I found in one of his letters a reference to how he had been shipwrecked in Veracruz, being held in the port by the Spanish authorities, and a direct and very explicit reference to him employing an indigenous, um, indigenous um, in inverted commas, Indian uh, servant to go and collect specimens in the neighbouring province. These were mostly specimens which possessed some kind of medicinal property that was of interest to Houston as a, as a physician and to Sloan. But this is actually direct evidence as to who was actively going out and collecting these specimens. And it was probably quite useful to have someone like that for Houston to go and collect this material because these people knew what the useful plants were already. So Houston didn't have to go out and even bother to test the capabilities of these species. He already had someone there who knew the information about them that had been built up 
by indigenous communities in the Americas over thousands of years. So these, this is how far you can trace yeah. back through. And I suppose there's quite a different image from we were talking earlier about the kind of, you know, sanding and, and going these field trips with, mm. with, uh, uh, with Henslow, people like this, uh, Darwin going these field trips, and this kind of experimental, you know, getting kind of, yeah. uh, you know, getting gritty with it, you know, and the kind of gentlemanly dictating what is required um, and having someone do all of the practical business which is needed to source the item and return it back to them. There's quite a gulf between those two well, images. even round here on these field trips, they don't just stay to themselves. They communicate with local people, mm. farmers, people working the land, to find out where these plants are. And you see references to this on quite a number of specimens. Leonard Jennings mm. is a good person who writes about this. And you see um, he goes and visits some farmer way off in the middle of the fen for a few days and he writes, oh, the local name is such and such. People around here use it for this particular illness. You know, if you've got, say, a cut or something, uh, you rub, rub it in the cut and it heals more quickly or it acts as a sort of purgative or, or whatever. So you actually see the, the same kinds of practices drawing on the local knowledge, but in a slightly different context, of course, even as say in Glamlingay Heath or somewhere like that, and that goes back. I mean, that, I mean that's really interesting actually because that kind of process is something that seems to be traced throughout. I mean, there's you, know, you look at the kind of wise women of the exactly. medi- uh, medieval period and early modern period, and you have these sort of you can find. I, I forget the. It might be Paracelsus. It gives us a bit of advice to young physicians, which is go and visit the wise women because in, in order to take your business from the wise women. You have to acquire their knowledge, and their knowledge is acquired through experience. Um, And like you said, it's just kind of a matter of, I know that works. I have tried that, it made me ill. I've tried Mm -hmm. that, it made me less violently ill or it cured me. And then you have these physicians who are going to these, like, all these these simple gardens. That was their way of trying to... Mm -hmm. So it's always, there's that kind of need for these disciplines to amalgamate the the practical side. You know, that's not as theoretical, maybe, but is effective. Give a uh, not that funny but kind of funny example from the talks last night. We had uh, one of our speakers was talking about EJ Corner, um, a mycologist um, by particular interest, um, who was based out in Singapore uh, for a, a large chunk of his career, and he found some some mushrooms which looked awfully similar to some very delicious ones found in in Britain and he served them up and made his dinner guest hideously ill and And himself and himself (laughs) and himself yes um and he he described how he fried them up in butter um, and they they should have been delicious and they very definitely weren't but he clearly wasn't actually talking to local people and finding out what was and wasn't edible um so sometimes that that uh uh, transfer of information is not always there, and that's that recorded in the archives yes. as well. <laughs> these were not these were not psychedelic mushrooms, or were no, they? no, these were definitely oh. uh, unhappy stomach making. Well, uh, that's mushrooms. the worst. You don't even get the. Well, you, you can kill people very easily. He could have killed his well, yes, because himself yeah. and his yeah. guests very easily. Um, it was an absolutely crazy thing to do. Yeah. Recommendation: do not, do not forage for mushrooms unless you are absolutely sure. Um, I, I know colleagues who have made themselves very ill thinking they've been for- foraging uh, mushrooms which, which are okay to eat and good to eat and, and they've made themselves very ill and you know, you can do terrible damage to yourself, long-term damage, if not death. 
Well, death is the ultimate long-term damage. Really. As Terry Pratchett said, everything, yeah. everything is edible. <laughs> <once>. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've talked well about that idea of... that. So there's a hefty importance, again, on classification. Because, I mean, like you said, it's a matter of life or death as well. If you miss, yeah. if you miss kind of categorise something or you misunderstand something, then it could be more than just your dinner guests being ill. It could be all of them having some horrible kind of thiasties-like ending, mm-hmm. which you don't want. Um, but also there's that real kind of strange um, phenomenon in the period, in the late 18th century, around the revolutionary period, uh, Edwin, where you're kind of... There's a there's a, also a, a strange relationship between classification and the body politic and all these sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah, which is, um, you know... How... I mean, classification, and particularly the ability to classify and structure nature according to the system devised by the Swedish naturalist Carl Linnaeus... Carl Linnaeus is the person who really um, developed the use of binomial names that we know today, Homo sapiens for humans, that is a Linnaean, Linnaean name, the two, two-part Latin names. That, in Britain in particular, began to be seen as a major pillar used to um, structure society. The alignment of the classes within the Linnaean system the different orders, you know, the different ways of um, arranging plants was began to, uh, was seen to mirror the social hierarchy of British society. King at the top, nobility, mm-hmm. peasantry at the bottom. Um, so science actually became quite intimately wrapped up with the social makeup of the state. And you see that actually in the early collections of the university as well. Thomas Martin was a pioneer of the Linnaean system in the early days, and then he became almost afraid to move away from it, even until his death in 1825. In 1825, to use the Linnaean system in anywhere in Europe was pretty old-fashioned. But in somewhere like Cambridge, which was a great supporter of the church and the king in the revolutionary period, it was actually quite important for maintaining the status quo, both in research and in teaching. I mean, there was an interesting um, episode, actually, when Martin, in his old age, attempted to retire and resign from his professorship, I think it was two or three times, in favour of a man called James Edward Smith, who was one of the most prominent botanists of the age, big supporter of the Linnaean system. However, the university, there was quite a controversy about this. Smith was not a member of the Church of England. He was a Unitarian, because that was seen as far too radical, and you could not be a professor or even a student or a fellow of any college at this university, if you were a Unitarian at the time, they rejected his application. This is probably the most qualified person in order to teach what they needed to teach and undertake research on in the whole country at the time. So it's remarkable about how the political situation and how radicalism interacted with scientific teaching and research. Also, I imagine there's there's a connection there between talking about that importance of early colonial endeavours or early mm-hmm. colonial travel to amassing the material that, that is in some respects gathered here. So another section of the collection we have, we have enormous amount of material from the East India Company, Ooh. the Wallach collections and so on. They've not been documented. I mean, the Wallach material was kept in, in enormous sets, and Q, again, has, has the, the main set 
Um, but there, there, were, there was lots of material which was distributed and purchased, sold around the world. So we have multiple sets of all these individuals. It's, it happens again with um, perhaps slightly less, less well-known to, to some of the listeners, but Richard Spruce, really important uh, Victorian botanist who spent 15 years in Brazil, collecting in Brazil, um, charting the rivers in Brazil and documenting traditional uses of all sorts of things, all sorts of plants, all sorts of um, materials and writing extensively about them, working with local people, I, I believe in a, a more collaborative way than perhaps some others of the era um, and, and sending back huge amounts of plant material. Again, we have multiple sets of that material and there have been research projects on spruce, there have been big research projects on the Wallach material, the East India Company material, and unfortunately because of the, quite a lot of our material was tucked away in storage for a long time and we weren't really using it, we, we're only sort of really registering what we've got now. So it's kind of a bit, sometimes like sort of opening up a, an ancient Egyptian's tomb mm -hmm. and finding a whole bunch of things that have enormous significance to different researchers, different people, different countries. You know, some we have early specimens collected from all sorts of countries where nowadays we, we would never do field work and not leave material in country with our collaborators, with our local partners, fully integrated part of collaborative research. We'd bring material back to Britain, so to, to say my own institution, if I was doing field work, would distribute material to other countries, to other collections, so that other people could study the material. Historically, material was not really left in country. <laughs> uh, so when when um, the East India Company uh, botanists, when people were collecting material, they weren't leaving specimens in India, say. So we have historical material that, that we have an ethical responsibility to share, to make available, to allow researchers free access to images, to come and visit, to loan material. Well, it's very interesting as well that we have this collection that's built on amassing things in order to classify them, but also the system of classification, like you said, Edwin, is sort of a, can be seen or would have been seen at the time as justifying a kind of natural order. And it's that very strange relationship between this burgeoning system of scientific classification and phrenology and these sorts of very uncomfortable attitudes towards um, other races that kind of justified the empire or justified um, slavery in the period. So there's a whole ethical tangle going on in terms of these things are, yeah, there is a sort of responsibility to unearthing these things mm. and um, giving them life again where they've kind of been buried for so long. We should probably um, say that we, we are going to have some of our herbarium specimens, some of our 18th century material in the exhibition that uh, is going to be open at the Fitzwilliam Museum, opening in September and running through to January. Uh, so people will get a chance to see some of our specimens and they're, they're particular specimens which Edwin selected from uh, the Martin collections. Maybe you want to say a few words yes, about those? Yes, I'd be very happy to. So as I mentioned before, there's some specimens um, that William Houston collected in Campeche and Villa Cruz going in. I can't remember how many. There's only three, three or think, four I think objects. Space, but, but the, um, three, but the stories behind them are quite impressive. So we've got some coming from Houston and Villa Cruz, collected by indigenous people in South America. We've also got another specimen, which is very important, which is part of a few specimens in the earlier collection that found its way back to Thomas Martin 
the third professor of botany in Cambridge in the 1780s. It was sent by a man called Alexander Anderson, who was unbelievably eccentric and a really, really interesting figure that I encourage any listener to, uh, to look up. There's actually a, a project down at Winchester looking quite closely at Anderson. But Anderson was the, um, the curator of the Botanic Garden in St Vincent. And he was uh, really totally fascinating. He used to go on expeditions throughout the West Indies. His wife actually lived in the garden with him in the house and she was actually profoundly deaf and had uh, enslaved servants actually to help care for her and, and really just, you know, show her, show her around um, and look, at, look after her in the period. But Anderson also worked incredibly closely with an enslaved workforce at the Botanic Garden in St Vincent. These people used to tend the land. He also worked with um, what we think is a freed uh, man called John Tiley, who was of mixed race, who was an artist, who depicted many of the specimens that Anderson sent back. And much of his work is actually now in the collection of the Linnaean Society in London. But it's really fascinating because he actually actively signs several of the pieces that Anderson commissioned, mm -hmm. thus meaning we actually have a really interesting representation of how particularly non-white people are actually communicating and contributing to the creation of botanical knowledge in, in the Caribbean in this period. Yes, and, and actually one of those illustrations, one of those paintings which the Linnaean Society has, painted by John Tiley, commissioned by Anderson, I believe that is going to be in the exhibition as well. So the exhibition is the Black Atlantic exhibition, um, and that's Power, People and Resistance. And uh, like I said, that, that opens in September uh, this year. Very good. Also, I think it would be good, now we've talked about things of the future, to briefly delve to things of the past, because this um, presentation is split over into two talks. And uh, the first of which happened yesterday, the second of which will be happening on the 30th. But what uh, things were sort of discussed or talked about in yesterday's, I won't call it a soiree. Um, <laughs> um, no, it wasn't. No, no, no. <laughs> it doesn't uh, wasn't uh, yesterday's kind of, uh, presentation, what kind panel of things event. Panel yeah, event. Panel is event. the term that an academic would use, think. panel event. Um, what things were discussed? In that well, it, it was a... A, a real range of, of time periods, locations, individuals. It was it was very eclectic, and we we went from from the fens and Cambridgeshire ditches uh, through to Madeira, the saffron fields of South Cambridge, uh, say South Cambridgeshire, to Singapore and monkeys collecting specimens, uh, through to the Grand Tour and um, and all sorts. So. Yeah, it was it was wide ranging, and the next the next panel event will be similarly wide ranging. So I think that will be something of interest to, to lots of different people. Well, hope hopefully there'll be people um, speaking at the next at the next event about um, some of the earliest Arctic specimens brought back um, by Parry. We'll also have uh, a talk about the fascinating wall charts that we've mentioned earlier. And we'll also have Lauren saying something. Yes, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to say something about um, some of the, the more recent discoveries we've made about botanical artwork in the collections. We've uncovered some really beautiful pieces, which, which have a lot of significance. They're from some, some incredibly important 
botanical publications mm. produced over the last couple of hundred years. And we've also got um, another grand tour, but we've got a bit of Italian yes. grand tour being covered by uh, one of the historians speaking next week. So, yeah, it'll be a good mixture. That's, about, that's actually about Materia Medica, hopefully. Mm. Which is very, should, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward, actually, to what's been made of this, because it's, it's another, it's an object that she's been looking at, which is... Well, it's, no one's ever looked yeah. at it before, no. and that's not unrepresentative. I mean, every time you open a box or a <laughs> folder in this collection, there's something you're like, I didn't realise that still existed, or, yeah. you know, this is extraordinary. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, we um, have this. That's totally wow. representative of every box yeah. or folder. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is, I think, the beauty of this sort of thing, really, is that you're so at the same time mapping things almost three-dimensionally for over centuries, mm to such a degree that you can sort of make predictions as to how to best to resolve current issues. So, but then also at the same time, it's something of perpetual rediscovery or, or, or like you're constantly opening up some, I won't say Pandora's box, a, a much nicer <laughs> box to open than, well, hopefully not a Pandora's one, but then I think it's, and it's you know, such a, a kind of great plurality of techniques yeah. and expertise you know, that are going into these it's, sorts of things. It, I mean, it's a terrible cliche, and we all, in collections world, we all hate saying treasure trove of <laughs> wonders, blah, blah, blah. But it really is a treasure trove. It's actually enormous fun. Mm. It's great fun having having people coming and looking at the material as well through different eyes, you know, as a, yeah. as a botanist by training, as a systematist, a taxonomist, um, Feel botanist. Okay, okay, all right. But but for all these all these different scientific backgrounds, it's such a different world to 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 the different perspectives that other disciplines have, and that's that's really it's been really interesting. And one of the things with the panel events that we've we've been doing as part of the Cambridge Festival is most of the things people are speaking about they are things that people have only seen a few times. They've mm. they've only been to visit a couple of times. They're objects that they picked out of interest and then they've gone away and done some more research figured out how it fits in with their field so yeah there's there's a real element of discovery that we've incorporated into this deliberately they are things that people have opened a box and said oh my goodness i need to find out more but also the beauty of the rarity of an encounter as well mm. um there's only one time you're going yeah. to be able to handle this or maybe not handle but, but look at this object experience this object be it uh, uh, a specimen itself or a representation yeah. of a specimen also, which in its own way is as rare and um, as beautiful and has its own kind of craft that goes into it. I think that's what's really beautiful about I've used the word beautiful already so many times, but I think it's justified, honestly, because it's sort of, it's not only uh, a scientific endeavour, but it's also an aesthetic endeavour as well. There's so much ocular joy as well as theoretical joy going on. There is, and, and someone like Henslow, I mean, Henslow has a very aesthetic eye. He, he is an artist himself as well. He, we have watercolours by him, we have scientific diagrams by him. He produces the wall charts, but he also arranges her, his herbarium specimens aesthetically because he was interested in, in variability of species. He was interested in hybridisation. He was interested in monstrosities, as he called them, mutants. Things doing different things, but also the limits of species and how how variable they were across their distribution. So he has these wonderful collated sheets. We call them collated sheets, where you have multiple specimens of the same plant on one sheet. And he, in, in some cases, he's collected the tallest and the shortest and the ones in between. 
and then he's laid them out, mounted them on the sheet in a in a bell curve or in a ascending line of, in in order of size. They look like diamonds, don't they? Yeah, they smallest, are. They can be largest, beautiful. Smallest. And then there'll be a little pretty. selection of ones which are doing something a bit different, growing in different forms. So there's the, I mean, modern botany when when we make herbarium specimens. There is an aesthetic to it. There's a, a there's particular principles that we're following when we are arranging specimens, so that we can see the different sides of things, so that we have access to the key features. But there is an aesthetic aspect to and making a very beautiful herbarium specimen. And and Hensley's specimens are ex extremely beautiful in in many cases. And maybe it's worth saying, the way we make herbarium specimens today is exactly the same principle as how they were made back into the into the 17th century 16th even, even. yeah 16th yeah. century essentially we, we we dry and press plants between boards uh, we use papers and stuff that, there's ways of, of, of making them dry better and improve um, the quality of what you get out the other end but essentially they're giant flower presses and that's the way that's the way Darwin collected his specimens on the voyage of the beagle it's the way we collect them today the methodology of making them is it's incredibly it wasn't um, always so simple though because i remember <laughs> when nathan smith was here looking through the collection who spoke on corner there are some of corner's specimens still in the collection from malaya which are still actually within their cardboard boards and you can see in the tropical climate just how difficult it must have been for him yes. to have dried them because yeah. obviously it's so humid and you can see he was obviously holding them over a fire to try and dry them out and he singed the edges yeah, of the boards. Yeah, there are tips and tricks on, on getting <laughs> specimens dry in humid climates in particular. Um, generally, you, you douse your specimens in liberally in alcohol, yeah. but usually the local uh, concoction, that whatever you can get hold of and whatever's cheap. Uh, but you, you put all your specimens into a bag in their presses and then you douse them with alcohol and you seal it up so you have a sort of alcoholic atmosphere for them. <clears throat> Hopefully that will stop them rotting in the time it takes to get from the field site back to somewhere where you can actually dry them. Yeah. But sometimes you're, you are, you're literally tying your herbarium presses to the boughs of a tree and having a fire underneath <laughs> it to try and dry them or having a little gas burner, a little stove underneath and try not to singe your specimens, <laughs> let alone set the whole lot in flames but it's definitely challenges and i when i look at older specimens um and maybe they're not in the most beautiful of conditions or they you know they, they haven't been collected beautifully you have to remember the limitations that people one day when, when people are collecting things like algae we had a box of specimens i found uh, quite early on when i started in post labeled challenger algae they're algae specimens from the the challenger voyage um, again they hadn't been really documented as part of the big um, challenger uh, natural history work that has gone on but you open them up and a lot of them are not the most beautiful things you've seen in the world but they were collected at high seas in, in the victorian times unbelievably different algae are difficult to collect at the best of circumstances you know, back home by the seaside, where you've, where you've got calm conditions and you can do them, do them really nicely. And particular techniques to to help with that. If you're collecting them on on board a ship, <laughs> where you've literally been dredging them out of the sea, you know you have to you have to make some exceptions for for how beautiful they look and at the end. Speaking of dredging things out, and speaking of flames, and thinking of singeing, <laughs> all this and more on the uh, on the panel discussion. I'm sure on the thirtieth to which I reckon people should go 
and that's not just my opinion. Well, actually, it is just my opinion, but um, I'm sure that'll count for many people. It's been a very lovely chat. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Edwin, and thank you very much, Dr. Lauren. And please, please do go down uh, half five to seven p.m. Thursday, the thirtieth of March. Uh, this panel discussion here in the same auditorium, half five to seven, uh, the thirtieth of March. I'm sure an extremely stimulating panel discussion, talk, soiree, whatever term you want to use. And also, I should recommend before the ending of this podcast, if you have been listening all the way, thank you very much. If you gave up halfway through, I hate your guts. If you <laughs> didn't listen to this, then I can say whatever I want about you. You won't even know I'm talking to you, but I won't because it's not in my nature. Do make sure to follow the uh, Cambridge Festival on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. For example, this event on the 30th, but also even more fascinating events all around the theme of power. Follow the Say That Again Slowly podcast for more conversations such as this one with this year's experts on the theme of power. And uh, thank you for listening if you have. Have a good morning or afternoon or evening whenever you're listening to this, wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Thank you. <laughs>